Good morning, Vertical. How are we feeling today? Everybody rested, rejuvenated after a little spring break? No, that doesn't happen. You spend way more time with your kids. I know. That's fine. I'm excited to get in today. We're starting up a new series, but before we do that, I kind of want to tell you about something that sort of traumatic that actually happened in my life. You know, the last couple of months we've been talking about My Story Matters, and I've realized that my story also matters, and so today I want to walk you through something I experienced last week. I, it was last Monday, it was a couple Mondays ago actually, I got into my truck and sat down in my seat, and it was one of those Monday mornings where you just kind of have to stretch, you know, to start the day, and I sat down in my old Tacoma in my driveway and stretched, it popped it in reverse, and went to back out of my driveway and realized that I couldn't see anything out of my rearview mirror except for the back seat of my truck. And I had this moment where I had to lift my mirror a full three inches towards the ceiling. And I was like, is this how I usually sit, you know? Like, I know I'm a short guy, but I'm not this short, you know? This can't be a real thing. Somebody much shorter has been sitting in my seat. And I moved my mirror and I was driving and I was very conscious of my posture for the next few weeks, right? It was almost like I was walking around getting ready for a cotillion final, just kind of up like this, like I had books on my head. And I walked around very straight for a couple of weeks, and I began to convince myself that my posture is not actually this bad. I think I convinced myself that the mirror in my truck had slid. You know, you know like when you convince yourself that your waistline shrunk in the dryer? It's kind of how it was going. But then I was met with an abrupt realization in the form of public humiliation uh, on Instagram, actually. Um, if you're not familiar, um, the lady on the riser over here a moment ago, her name is Avery. She is not only a great guitarist, but she is also our show, social media director. And Avery was just doing her job, okay? Avery was doing her job. She was promoting the fact that we have a new podcast called Vertical Plus, and she wanted you all to know Shameless plug. Uh, she wanted you all to know that you can find it on Spotify and on Apple+. Plus. Now, this is not what we posted, though. What we actually posted was a picture of us recording this podcast. And I realized that my posture is not actually that great at all. Um, in fact, actually, I started realizing just how important that social media director... Th yeah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. I realize how important that social media director role is because this picture right here has me talking real nice to Avery lately. Like, I'm not in charge of raises around here, but Avery needs one, all right? Whoever is in charge of that. No, this picture was like, hey, you need to straighten up, son. Uh, and so I've been really walking around with books now the last couple of weeks. Can we take that down, please? <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Good. We're jumping into a series called Reconsider. And um, I'm excited for this series mostly because... Um, Honestly, it's kind of a lot like our posture. I've been thinking a lot about spiritual growth in this time where we're jumping into Easter. Easter is coming, and I've been remembering where I was last Easter. And I think spiritual growth is kind of like your posture a little bit, right? You would think that I could take standing and sitting for granted after 30 years of life almost, right? Turns out I'm not that great at it. I'm not really good at standing or sitting straight. It doesn't really work that way. And in the same way, for the same amount of time, I had been sitting in rooms like this, 
working things out in rooms like this, listening to people teach, taking place in worship services, reading the Bible, hearing Jesus love me, and even still, sometimes, I look in the mirror and realize that I am a little bit um, askew, you know? Things are not necessarily exactly how I think they are. And so going into this series, Reconsider, I'm hoping that it serves all of us. It's been serving me, but I hope that it serves you as a moment and as an opportunity to take a moment to reconsider. It's a very simple story, but it's going to offer you two opportunities, and I hope you take one. One is a spiritual straighten-up moment. Did your grandma ever tell you that? My granny told me that. Hey, straighten up. I didn't listen. Clearly. The story that we're going to be talking about the next two weeks is going to give us an opportunity to sort of spiritually straighten up. And the other opportunity that it's going to afford us is to take a moment to take a seat into a calling that maybe you haven't taken before. Maybe God is calling you to something new, and I think that this passage actually affords us the opportunity to do that. We've got a lot of Bible. We've got two big places that we're spending time in this morning, in Matthew and in Acts, and I want to make sure we have time to get to both. But for those of you who may be new or maybe haven't been able to spend a lot of time with us so far this year, I do want to tell you that so far this year we have dedicated ourselves to the parables. We've been spending time in these stories that Jesus tells us because we believe that a key to living a life that looks like Jesus is being able to live very closely to his words. We believe that if we know Jesus' philosophies well, then the biblical periphery will start to make sense. That was a big sentence. Um, we believe that when Jesus comes to town, things become much more simple. And so this year, we are taking time to focus on his words and the way that he teaches. And just as an aside, I really appreciate that Jesus teaches through stories. You know, just being completely real, if you spend any time around me, you know that I don't really take long-winded preachers or prideful seminary professors that seriously. I think that what we see Jesus do with the religious people, potentially in this story even, means that he and I might be friends in the fact that we enjoy the simple nature of the scripture. It should be easy for us to take on and live. Jesus gives us simple stories that lead to action. Remember that. And so in this short parable, we're going to jump into Matthew 21 early this morning. You see Jesus entering the city triumphantly, toting the sacrifice that he knows is coming. Yes, we're already getting towards Easter. Where we're coming in today, Jesus is entering the city knowing that he is going to be crucified. The weight of that sacrifice on him. And we see the cross is quickly coming. And even as the people celebrate his entrance into the city, these religious leaders begin to question on what authority he is able to teach and preach the way that he is. And it seems the only difference between the ultra-religious then and now is that the ultra-religious then did not have a keyboard to hide behind. They questioned Jesus publicly. Can you imagine questioning Jesus to his face? And so we get the public telling of this story, this powerful story that Jesus covers and we're going to cover for the next two weeks. I'm going to be reading out of the CSB because I enjoy it and I have the mic. But I want you to read out of whatever translation makes the most sense to you. Jumping into Matthew 21, verses 28 through 31. Jesus says to these religious leaders, the Pharisees, What do you think? 
This is a telltale sign that he's about to give us an analogy. A man has two sons. It's important to know this man is standing in for God, and his two sons are the two templates for life. A man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, My son, go and work in my vineyard today. And the son answered, I don't want to. Anybody have that kid? I was that kid. I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. And then the man went to his other son and said the same thing. And he said, I will, sir. But then he didn't go. Big, big part of this passage. Jesus asked, which of the two did his father's will? I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, it's helpful for me to know the goal, right? I want to know when I'm reading this, is this something that I need to know? Is this something that I need to do? Is this the type of person that I should be? Jesus is telling us right here, when he asks which of the two did his father's will, he's saying there is an option to which type of person you are going to be, and there is a correct answer to this. He asked them, who did his father's will? And they said, I have to guess begrudgingly because they knew they had fallen for his trap. The first. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. This seems pretty assertive on Jesus' part, doesn't it? There's something uncomfortable baked into this passage. Maybe it's the fact that we're sitting in rows in churches and Jesus is pretty much calling out these religious leaders black and white, right? There's no gray when it comes to Jesus. I tend to like my Jesus a little more like I like my Indian food, a little more mild, right? Not so aggressive. But Jesus is not mild. And there's reason behind this. Though he was human, he was absolutely honest. He was also completely God, which means he's absolutely just. And being both completely human and God means that it affords him the ability to be completely realistic. It's an interesting word for our Savior. It's kind of a funny way to describe Jesus as realistic. But that's exactly why Jesus uses these parables to teach us. Parables tend towards the practical. Parables tend towards the practical. I think that's one reason why I love them. Does anybody love anything practical in here? Just something that just works, you know? I have things like that that I love. You can ask my wife. She's somewhere in here, and she knows. I love something that just works. I have a Leatherman tool in my glove box that I've had for 10 years. I love it. It just works. I've used it so much it's almost like rusted because I've left it outside and put it back in there. It just works. I love headlamps. You could ask her. I have so many of them. They're just strewn through our garage because they just work. I use them for early morning runs. I use them to change the oil in the car. I use them to walk to the deer stand. I love headlamps. They just work. I love the practicality of this story because Jesus only gives us two options, and it just works. Neither son was perfect. They both messed up in different ways. One son was disrespectful and one was disobedient. All the same, one ended up in the correct place. You know, Jesus doesn't really get enough credit for this. The, the amount of genius it takes with which to relay this information in such a simple story. Consider everything that's going on here. He's talking to these religious leaders. He's walking them through and teaching them a lesson. And at the same time... He is communicating this very simple part of the gospel that was yet to take place yet. He already knew the cross was coming. And the simplicity of this story communicates the fact that perfection is not required. That's beautiful. 
Perfection is not required, but perception is. Perfection isn't required, but being able to see and hear and become aware of our spiritual status and know that we need something, that is required. And he mentions these prostitutes and these tax collectors, the scorn of ancient society. And they're not only highly regarded by Jesus just because they're underdogs. The reason they stand in high regard with Jesus is because they knew where they stood in relation to God. They knew they needed him. And these priests didn't. That is the beginning stages. This is the first moment as Jesus enters the city where we start to see these little inklings of the gospel seep out in the words that he's saying. And it's obvious who Jesus is implying the Pharisees are in this story. And, but for, for right now, I'm not even that concerned about who the Pharisees are. Next week, we're going to get to talk about the second son. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give these Pharisees a break for a moment. And if you tend towards the pharisaical like I do, you can have a break too, because we're going to talk about this first son for the next few minutes. He said there are two templates for life baked into this parable. There are the Pharisees, and then there are the children that need to learn a lesson. The children who need to learn a lesson to end up in the right spot. Jesus almost refers to them as the low lives. Now, I don't know a lot about children. I don't have any children, but I have a lot of friends here who have children, and I've been watching you. And what I've learned about children is that children do not change their mind and choose obedience on their own. Am I right? Yeah? We don't say amen here, but that's okay. And I wonder if it was the same for this son who was disrespectful but wound up going to the vineyard anyway. It seems like there may have been a lesson dealt between his first reaction and the eventual action that he chose. Can anybody resonate with this? I I mean, when I look at my life, like I said, I haven't been a son, or I haven't been a dad, but I have been a son, right? And so I know that there is a time in every young man's life where you choose to challenge your father, and a lesson is typically dealt. My dad is about four inches taller than me and 100 pounds more of a man, so you can figure out how that went. My dad goes by Bubba. So, I learned lessons pretty quickly. And you look at this story and you think this son definitely learned a lesson somewhere between being disrespectful and saying that he was not going to go to this vineyard and he wound up in the right place. And the good news for him, the good news for the people who need to learn a lesson, the good news for maybe the low lives, I love that, is that people who have been whipped into changing their mind are often used, or historically used, for God's purposes later. Let me show you what I mean. This is kind of a fantastic story, and I don't have a lot of time, but it's worth it. The Apostle Paul may be the most prolific person in the New Testament. All these books that we love to quote, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, those are some of the books that he wrote, some of the greatest hits of the New Testament, right? It, Paul is so prolific, actually, that in the New Testament, there's, there are books that like we don't know who wrote them, so we just kind of assume Paul wrote them. That's, that's how big of a deal he is. And yes, Scripture is authored by God, but we can't ignore the personality of Paul in these books because they're written as letters to his friends at the churches. Paul didn't just write the majority of the New Testament, but he was involved in these first missionary journeys, and he went and planted these churches. This guy is a big deal. 
New Testament churches are kind of weird. They're hard to wrap our minds around because we have as many churches in our town as there were back then, right, in the very beginning. When you think about New Testament churches, I want you to think about Waffle Houses, okay? Think about Waffle Houses. This, I learned this from somebody much smarter than me. Waffle Houses are this beautiful place where law enforcement and very inebriated people can coexist, right? That's kind of like what the early church was. It was wild, and nobody really knew what was going on, but you were gaining fulfillment from it, like Waffle House, okay? That's what was happening here. I was actually reading about Waffle House to make sure that I wasn't going to say any of this incorrectly, and I found something on the internet. Do you know that there's a thing called the Waffle House Index? The Waffle House Index. And the way that, this is fascinating. The way that this, sorry to get secular, bear with me, okay? The way that this works is when there is a devastating tornado or a horrible hurricane and the first responders are going to the scene of Mother Nature's crime, they start to look at Waffle Houses, right? And they start to take note and they will let people know this Waffle House is still operational. We can keep pressing on. But whenever they get to a place where a Waffle House is no longer running, they know they need to stop and start helping people. Because where there is not a Waffle House, there is no hope. That's sort of the way... That's sort of the way that Paul operated. This was Paul's theory as well. He would travel and tell people his story and why it mattered. And he would plan a church and he would build up leadership like management at a Waffle House. And then he would move on to the next place and open a new one. And he did this over and over and over. And we read all of these letters that are so inspirational, giving us so much instruction as Christians now. And we realize that this was the early stages of the church and Paul was discipling them, making the first disciples like we try and carry on today. And because of this, we are sitting in community today. But it's very important to point out that Paul's story was not perfect. It was far from perfect. Like the son who needed to learn a lesson, Paul didn't just come up with this strategy for planting churches on his own. In fact, when it was left up to his own ideas, Paul was so destructive. So destructive. Some of you may know that in a previous life, Paul, he was called Saul before that. Eventually, Jesus renamed him. And he was actively working against the people of God and anything Jesus He was ISIS murdering Christians. He was Westboro Baptist Church picketing funerals of our heroes. That was Paul. He wasn't an atheist, but he was the antithesis of anything Jesus. He was a violent man who found the right religion to back up his actions. And it wasn't just that he said no to working in the vineyard of God. He was actively trying to burn it down. This is the person that Paul was before he met Jesus. But then he had this meeting on the road. And this is a little bit longer passage, but it's important that we read it all so you understand the power of God in a man's story. Acts 9, 1 through 9 says this. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he even found any men and women who belonged to the way, that's what they found this early Jesus movement at the time, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled and he was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting, he replied. Get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. What a moment. What a terrifying, beautiful blessing of a moment in Paul's life here in chapter 9 of Acts. This is the sort of traumatic event that fixes your life and gives you the ability to affect other people's lives. And there's this basic truth that I wrote down reading this, and I think that it's important that we understand this as Christ followers. God loves us enough to allow us to learn hard lessons. God loves us enough to allow us to learn hard lessons. I told you I don't have kids, but I watch you, right? One of my best friends has a little boy, and this little boy gets into everything. And I'm at their house, and he's just like trying to jump in the pool. He can't swim. He can barely walk, right? And I was thinking the other day that a good dad doesn't shield his son from skinning his knee, right? He picks him up and bandages him and teaches him the importance of balancing the bike after he does. And this is exactly the role that Jesus plays in our life and the role that he played in Saul's life at this moment. These are the sorts of moments that don't just sober you up, but they fix your family. These are the sorts of moments that don't just make you feel better, but they mend your marriage. These moments are where we learn a hard lesson, but they lead us to be the people God intended us to be. These are the sorts of moments that turn a murderous Saul into a compassionate Paul. And thank God that he places these moments in our stories. As an aside, it makes me really hopeful to know that Paul's hard lesson actually came with good intentions from God. I said it earlier, but I think that we all, I know that I do at least, have a tendency to be this first son and the second son. We can do a little bit of both. I've been the Pharisee and I've been the tax collector. And while we're going to touch on the second son next week, I think that it's important we understand, even once we've learned our lesson, how to be effective in the vineyard. How to be a good steward, how to be a person who is working hard, but also working well in the vineyard. So the question that we're going to kind of end on today, I've only got a few minutes left, but I think it's important enough to talk through is, how do we ensure that we're being helpful in the vineyard? I wrote a couple of things down. I always think that it's worth saying that a lot of you have been following Jesus longer than I am, and so you guys have some wisdom that I don't. I don't have all the answers, but I do think that these help, and I've learned some of these things from a lot of you. The first thing that I see here is that we have to remember our previous position. We have to remember our previous position. Don't forget where you came from and don't forget where you used to be. I think in Christian circles, a lot of times we have a tendency to say, Jesus changed me and we forget where we were before he did that. We don't see that happen in Paul's story. Paul talks regularly in these letters about who he was before Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus. Yes, God forgives, and he, his forgiveness reigns supreme, but our story matters, just like we talked about last week with Rosalind, from beginning to end, the entirety of it. This is something that Paul models for us often. I was thinking last week, listening to Rosalind's story, 
thank God. Thank God for her story and her willingness not just to talk through the end of it. Because God so often uses those beginning stages, those things that were painful, the lessons that we had to learn, the things that we experienced for someone else once we have met him on the road to Damascus. We're given a very healthy example of how we can be educated on this process by God and how that generates compassion for other people. When we remember our experiences before Jesus, it's easier for us to love people who have not met him yet. Next thing, commit ourselves to Christian community. We have to learn to commit ourselves to Christian community, preferably people who know us well enough and have known us long enough to remember our condition before Jesus. And if they haven't known us that long, they have to be people that we've been honest with and told them about where we have failed in the past. Again, Christian community is not all tucked in shirts and combed over Lifeway posters. And it's also not tattoos and skinny jeans. Christianity is not about optics like the Waffle House. It's about sustenance. We need people who ask us hard questions. We need people who are also spending time in God's word to check our motives against it. We need Christian community. We need people who love us enough to want us to grow more than they want us to be comfortable. Get those people in your life. And lastly, lastly, we have to find a movement and we have to master it. We have to find a movement and we have to master it. A great question to ask yourself is, after following Jesus for all of these years, I was thinking about this this week. I've been in ministry 10 years at this point now, this, in, in a couple of months. After following Jesus for all of these years, are there still any spiritual signs of life? Are there still any spiritual signs of life? And if not, I would encourage you to find a place to be active. Find a place to be active. And we convince ourselves oftentimes that finding a place in the vineyard to be active has to be very complicated. And you need a lot of qualifications and you have to meet certain specialties. And it's just not the case. Personally, I recommend finding something small and becoming the best that you possibly can be at it. We have people here who have mastered the art of making coffee and holding open doors. And mastering that matters. We have people here who are masters at knowing your kids' names when you check them in so that you can come in here and sit in here and spend time in God's word and celebrate what he's done for you. Mastering that matters. And we have people in the room who let men just sit in their driveways and be real about the ways that they know they need to grow for their families. Mastering that matters. Like Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth, we play a small part in accomplishing the goals that God has for his kingdom overall. But mastering that small part is important. And if we do, take note of the growth that takes place around you. My continual prayer for Vertical is that we would be a church that is known for the things that we're doing, not just the things that we say. And I think that these steps are a great way for us to start doing that well. I'm excited. I'm excited for what this year holds, as long as we take these things seriously. Let me pray for you. God, anytime we open your word, 
I just want to pray for discernment that we would be able to read it accurately. That we wouldn't come to our own assumptions about what it means, God. More often than not, it's so much more simple than we try to make it. God, I pray that we would have the discernment to read your word accurately and that we would have the courage to apply its simple truths. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. We'll see you next week, guys. Have a great one.